The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. All right. Well, with that, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're taking a break today from our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and of course, we are fixing our minds and heart upon the glorious reality of the incarnation. It is Christmas Eve, tomorrow's Christmas Day. I know you've got many plans to be with friends and family and parties and all kinds of things that you've been involved with this past week and the week to come. And in the midst of that, obviously, it's easy to lose sight of really what we're celebrating. And so this morning, for just a few moments, I want to remind us once again of the basics of Christianity, the basics of Christmas, A few years ago, I read an article entitled, Pastor, Don't Get Cute This Christmas, (laughs) by Kevin DeYoung. Let me read a little portion of it to you. I think it's helpful kind of thinking along these lines. He says this, I know the feeling. Christmas comes around every year, the same songs, the same text, the same story. Most of the time, I love the familiar rhythm of Advent and the comforting routine of tradition, But as a pastor, I also know that sense of desperation. How many more Christmas sermons can I possibly come up with? I sympathize with the temptation to novelty. But don't do it, pastor. Don't get cute at Christmas. Your people need regular meat and potatoes, not the newest eggnog recipe. Stay away from the props and the video clips. Put to death the Star Wars tie-in that you've been really excited about. Don't worry about preaching the same truths and the same themes. They don't remember last year's sermon anyway. (laughs) So go ahead and tell them the old, old story one more time. There will be unbelievers at your Christmas Eve service and struggling saints and weary souls and wayward sinners and stragglers who have ventured into a church for the first time in a long time. And they need to hear about Jesus, about the Word made flesh, about the only begotten Son sent from the Father, about the one who fulfilled ancient prophecy, about the one who came to save his people from their sins. Dear Pastor, our people don't need us to find something new. Our people need the gospel. They need the Trinity. They need to hear about the miracle and the majesty and the mystery of the incarnation. So hunker down in Matthew 1 or Luke 2 or Isaiah 9 or Micah 5 or John 1 or any text that will lead you to lift high the name of Jesus. Don't be cute or clever. Just preach Christ and your people will be glad you did. And looking back years later, so will you. So that's what we're going to do today. It won't be cute, it won't be novel, and we're going to hunker down in Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. I I like his advice. And the temptation is a very real one. How many more sermons can we give? How many more songs can we sing? How many other ways can we say the same thing over and over again? And so the temptation is there to be creative, to be novel, to make it fresh, to find something new. And yet we must resist that temptation because frankly, all we need is the old story told to us again and again and again. 
We need to hear about Jesus, as he says, about the word made flesh, about the only begotten son sent from the father, about the one who fulfilled ancient prophecy and the one who came to save his people from their sins. That truth never grows old, right? We need to hear this because it's easy at this time of year to speak in vague generalities. It's the spirit of Christmas. It's the reason for the season. And we say those things, and and yet many people can say those things and not mean what Christmas is really about. We can talk about gift giving and laughter and parties and get-togethers and being kind and all of the things that go into this supposed spirit of Christmas. But the question is, what is this all about? It is ultimately an opportunity for us to exalt Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is about. To display his wonder, to declare his glory, and to speak of the wonder of the incarnation, and to give thanks to God for his indescribable gift. That's what we should be doing this time of year. And if you haven't been doing that up to this point, then then you need to do that. You need to respond with wonder and love and praise to this great work of God on our behalf through his son. We see what Anna did when she was confronted with the birth of the Savior. She gave thanks to God and spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's what Simeon did when he saw for the first time Jesus in in just a few days old. It says that my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's what Mary said when she was told that she would bear this son. She says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. It's what Zechariah did when he was told that he'd be the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And as we just saw in Luke chapter 2, it's what the angels did. Glory to God in the highest. That's the true spirit of Christmas. That's what we're celebrating. That's the old, old story that we have to keep going back to over and over and over again. And to do that this morning, I want to take you to Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. These are... Five verses that I think really capture the essence of the incarnation. They answer the question, why did Jesus come? There are many texts that we could go to, but in a sense, this this wraps them all up. And the writer of Hebrews gives us four reasons here why Jesus came. Let me read these verses, starting in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid 
of those who are tempted. Do you really understand the reasons for the incarnation? Beyond Jesus came to die and save me from my sin. That, that's a good place to start, but, but do you know the depth of that? Do you know the realities of that? Do you know the wonder of that? Do you understand the implications of the fact that God became a man? Do you understand those things? Do you consider those things? Are you thinking on those things? And most importantly, have these realities changed your life? I want to give you four reasons for the incarnation that the writer of Hebrews tells us here in these five verses. Let's look at these together this morning. First, number one is to identify with us. The first reason why Jesus came was because he needed to identify with us. Notice verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. There's a description of what we're like in that verse, that portion of that verse. We are flesh and blood. In other words, we are human. We're earthly. We belong to the realm of humanity. It's where we were born. It's where we exist. It's where we thrive. This is our environment. We live in the human realm. And so the only way for God to rescue sinners, in order for him to redeem us out of our sinful condition, he, he had to become like us. He had to take on flesh and blood. He had to identify with the realm of humanity. That, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. That, that's what the incarnation is about. It's the arrival of the only one who could truly identify with us without sin because we live in this realm of flesh and blood. And you know this, prior to his incarnation, Jesus did not have a flesh and blood nature. He had only a divine nature. He was with God in the presence of heaven. He had perfect fellowship with the Father. He existed in eternity past as a second member of the Trinity in full communion with the Father. He was divine in his existence and his essence. He possessed no attributes whatsoever of humanity prior to the incarnation. One writer says, flesh and blood were foreign to his existence as the eternal son of God. So you have a problem. How does divinity alone rescue humanity? And the answer is it can't. It can't without identifying with humanity. That's the essence of the incarnation. That's the glory of Christmas. Christ took on human nature. One person but two natures. He took on flesh and blood to identify with us. This is what verse 14 tells us. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also 
partook of the same. He, he added a human nature to his existence. And the result is that he is now one of us. He is our brother. We identify with him. He identifies with us. He represents us. He's like us. He, he is related to us. He is our blood relative in the sense that we belong now to the same humanity. He's a part of that humanity that we exist in. And so he did this voluntarily, taking on a human nature. And we know it was a human nature because of what the New Testament tells us. He had a human birth. He came into this world just like we did. He had a human body, real flesh, real bones. He told Thomas to put his hands in his side and to touch his feet. He experienced human growth. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He had human limitations and weaknesses. He was tired. He was weary. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He had human emotions. He wept. For Lazarus, and he was troubled in the garden as he contemplated the cross. He was human in every way, yet without sin. And this is what makes the incarnation so glorious, actually makes it absolutely staggering for us to consider how is it that, that God full divinity, full majesty, full glory could take on the limits and constraints of humanity, but that's exactly what happened. Dale read it this morning. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the greatest mystery of all times. How is this possible? Philippians 2, of course, tells us more about this. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, He existed in the form of God, and he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. I mean, this is a staggering statement. He existed in the form of God. Before the incarnation, Christ enjoyed all the perfections and all the rights and the position that was due him as he and the Father and the Spirit enjoyed perfect fellowship amongst the Trinity. He existed in the form of God. And he existed in perfection. He enjoyed all the privileges of the Godhead. And he could have stayed in that position. He could have stayed in that glory because it was rightly his. But Philippians 2 tells us that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was willing in his humility to give up those rights, to give up that position, to relinquish the full display of his infinite Glory. This is known as the kenosis. This is what Philippians 2 7 tells us that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This is the self emptying of Christ in the incarnation. We have to be very clear here. Listen very carefully. He emptied nothing of his divinity, he gave up none of his divine attributes. 
He gave up none of his deity. He lost none of that. The divine person of the Son did not change himself into a human being. Nor did his divine nature turn into a human nature. Nor did he divest himself of any of his divine nature. Nor did he dilute his divine nature by mixing humanity with it. Nor did he cease acting in and through the divine nature in any way. He lost nothing of his deity. So what does it mean then when Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself? That's the key. He emptied himself. Himself, He didn't empty his deity, he emptied himself. He humbled himself and he added humanity to his deity. So his emptying was one not by subtraction but by addition. Do you understand that? That's very important. His emptying was not by subtraction. His emptying was by addition. As he added a human nature to his divine nature. And at the moment of his conception, he began subsisting in a human nature as well as the divine nature. He assumed a human nature, and he did so by taking on humanity. He did not divest himself of any of his deity. He gave up none of his divine attributes or prerogatives. He added a human nature right alongside his unchanging divine nature. This is how Jesus emptied himself. In order to become like us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you understand that in the incarnation Jesus became poor? That's what Paul tells us in that verse. He became poor. He was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. This was poverty for Christ because even though he had every right to continue an unlimited manifest power and authority, he had the right to do that. He did not selfishly count those riches to be held onto, but he sacrificed them in order to become a man. That's what it means that he became poor. One writer says he surrendered all the insignia of divine majesty and assumed all the frailty and vicissitudes of the human condition. He went from riches to rags. In a sense, we've all heard of rags to riches stories people winning the lottery and earning millions, winning millions, they go from rags to riches. This was a riches to rags story. As the Savior gave up his rights to to the full display of his glory in order to take on humanity so that in Christ... You have one person and two natures. One person 
with a divine nature and a human nature brought right next to each other, united in such a way that the distinct properties of each nature remain intact. This is very important. He did not mix his divine nature and his human nature to create a third nature, nor did one nature swallow up another nature. He is truly the God-man. Divine nature, human nature, in one person. And why did he do it? He did it because we share in flesh and blood. He did it because we, we needed someone to identify with us. We needed someone who could represent us to the Father and yet do it in a perfect way. And so do you understand this morning that if you're a believer, Christ is your brother. He's your brother in the fullness of the term. This is reason number one. He did this in order that he could identify with us. Reason number two. He did this in order to deliver us from the fear of death. Christ willingly took on a human nature. He emptied himself in order that he could deliver us from the fear of death. Notice verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The fear of death is a very real thing. Sometimes, even as believers, we can struggle with this concept of death, but certainly as an unbeliever, if there are people in your life that don't know the Lord, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, there is a very real chance that that death brings you great fear. It is a terrifying thing to live in the fear of death. Someone has called it the king of terrors. And this is true. Death is one of the great fears of man. There's even a phobia called thanatophobia, which is the fear of one's own mortality. And there's a sense in which this is very true. There's nothing as frightening as death. As a pastor, I have been summoned many times to hospitals and bedsides of people who are dying. Most of those have been believers, and so there's been a comfort there. There's been a peace there as these believers know that death has no final victory over them. But in some cases, I have sat at the bedside of those who are weeks or days, in some cases, hours away from death. And some of them don't know the Lord, and and In many cases, I have seen on their faces the fear of death. And it's almost palpable. It's almost tangible. 
death is a scary thing. And there's many reasons for it. Some people are afraid of the pain that death brings, especially a prolonged death with a prolonged illness that can bring much suffering and much pain. For some, that is the fear. For others, the fear of death is the fear of the unknown, not knowing how they're going to die and when they're going to die and whether it's going to be fast or quick. There's a mystery of it. There's an inability to prepare for it. And so for many people, the fear of death is just the unknown related to it. For other people, it's the, it's the fear of the loss of control. They can control almost everything in their life, but there's one thing they can't control, and it's the timing and the mode of their death. And so for some, that's the fear, is they can't control that. Others fear death because they're concerned about who they might leave behind. And still others are concerned about death because it's so final. Death is a scary thing. And yet, we have hope here because Satan's power has been destroyed. Notice verse 14. Notice that Satan has the power of death. Notice verse 14, that through death, Christ might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Do you understand that the devil has the power of death? Now, he doesn't have ultimate power. He's not sovereign over death because even he must submit to the Father who is the ultimate one who has determined the end of our days. We see this in the book of Job, of course, where God allows Satan to afflict Job but does not grant him the opportunity to take his life. Ultimately, God has the power of death in his hands, but Satan is the one who promotes his agenda through sin and death. So verse, the verse says, he has the power of death. And notice verse 15, what he does with this power. Verse 15 says, and Christ might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Notice what Satan does. Satan uses the fear of death to keep people enslaved to him. That's part of his M.O. That's how he works. The real dominion that he has over this world is the power of death. And he uses the power of death to enslave them to his purposes. Keeps them from doing what the Lord wants them to do. It keeps them in fear. And so it keeps them off balance. And so when people die who don't know the Lord, added to all this is they are catapulted into eternal death. There is, of course, spiritual death, and then there is physical death, but then there is eternal death. If you don't know Christ and you leave this world without knowing Christ, you enter into eternal death, and you are forever there enslaved by Satan himself as he is over hell in the sense that it is his domain to enslave those who are his in this life. So Satan holds people in their sin if he can and he keeps them captive to his devices and he keeps them fearful of death. That's what he is. That's what he's like. He is a killer. He is a murderer. 
John 8, 44 says that he was a murderer from the beginning and he exercises the power of death so that he can promote sin and rebellion against God. That's part of his plan. That's part of his strategy is he utilizes death to accomplish his purposes, to bring people into his kingdom or keep them into his kingdom and then to exercise the power of death over them as he keeps them in hell as the Lord sends them there ultimately. So we could say it this way, that death is Satan's weapon. Death brings bondage to people, and the problem is none of us can escape it. You can't escape death. Nobody can. It is a universal reality. But notice the hope in these two verses. That Christ, verse 14 through death, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is tremendous. Let this truth sink into your heart and understand these realities that at Christmas we are celebrating the arrival of the one, the only one who can destroy Satan and rob him of his weapon of death. This is why Christ came. He came to meet Satan on his own ground. And through his death, might strip Satan of the power of death by causing death to die. John Owen wrote a book entitled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's a great title. The Death of death in the death of Christ. This is why Jesus came, to render powerless him who has the power of death. In other words, he came to destroy the one who has the power of death, to do away with that, to abolish that, to render inoperative the one who has the power of death, that is Satan himself. And he's done that already on the cross. Satan has been rendered powerless even though he is still prowling around like a roaring lion, Christ has rendered him powerless, and when he returns, he will inflict the final blow upon Satan, and he will be cast forever into eternal fire. So he came, verse 14, to render powerless, and he came, verse 15, to free those who the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Do you understand this? He came to liberate us to throw open the prison, to remove the shackles, to unloose the chains. And he came to do this through his own death. He came to die. He came to live and be a sacrifice. He came to be our substitute. And in this death, the innocent one suffered for the guilty. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas. Although at Easter and the Good Friday, we're celebrating his death and resurrection, you can't disconnect his birth from those realities. 
So Christ, through his work at the, at the cross, has rendered death inoperative. It has no power over him. Listen to Revelation 1, 17 and 18. It says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I was once dead, I'm now alive, and now I have the keys of death. He's sovereign over it. He's victorious over it. Listen to 1 John 3, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And it's interesting, he used the same weapon that Satan had. Satan's tool was death, and Jesus submitted to that death in order to render death powerless. And so what's the result? No fear. No fear. You can stare death in the face as a believer and you can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's no fear in death. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand this? The incarnation leads to the cross and the open tomb, which then means no fear. Sometimes I'm driving around and I see these stickers on cars or people wearing the shirt that says no fear. I've never done this, but I'm tempted to go up to them and ask, is that really true? Do you really have no fear? What about death? The only people who should be buying those stickers are believers. Because only believers have no fear in death. Homer Kent says Christ's death has borne the penalty, and thus the fear producing cause has been removed for those who appropriate the benefits of Christ's death. Although physical death still remains, even that will be cared for by resurrection. And at present, death is for believers, the gateway to God's presence. Death is an entrance, not a closed door. It's an entrance to heaven. And the one who has secured that for us is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who came in order that he could render powerless him who has the power of death. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And I wonder, have you thought about this? Have you just left it at the simple basics Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Yes, that's true. But have you thought about the realities, the implications, the nuances of that, that you don't have to ever fear death again as a believer? 
If you're here today and you don't know Christ and you want to be free from that fear, then come to Christ. He will take that fear away. So why has Christ come? Number one, to identify with us. Number two, to deliver us from the fear of death. Number three, there's a third reason he came. It's to act as our sympathetic priest. He came to act as our sympathetic priest. We don't have priests today, so we're not really familiar with this whole priest thing. And there's a reason for that. It's because you're a priest and I'm a priest. We're the priesthood of believers. This is what happens when people come to Christ. They become a part of the the priesthood. We don't need an intercessor anymore in the sense that we need a mediator uh, to go to God. We have the mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can go to him. The veil has been torn. So we don't have earthly priests today other than Christ. He is our priest. He is our intercessor. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in verses 16 and 17. He says, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I love this. Notice verse 16. He does not give help to angels. You know why Jesus didn't come as an angel? Because angels don't need help. Good angels, elect angels, holy angels, they will never be lost. And so they don't need a priest. They don't need help. And fallen angels, demons, they can't benefit from help because they can't go from their state to a holy state. So there's a reason Jesus didn't come as an angel. Angels don't need help. But we do. We need serious help. In fact, we need life. Because apart from Christ, we're dead. So we are in a desperate spiritual predicament. We need help. And so in the incarnation, Christ passed by angels and he became one of us. He became a man. He entered our world. He entered our realm. And it was men, not angels, whom he planned to save. That's why verse 16 says, he does not give help to angels, but help to the descendants of Abraham. That's us. That's you. That's me. It's not just the Jewish people. If you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a descendant of Abraham, Galatians 3 tells us. So he had to become made like us, verse 17. This is the point. We've already talked about it, but notice, again, it says he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to become like us. The angels didn't need help. We needed help. And so he becomes like us. He identifies with us. He represents us. He takes on human flesh. He becomes a man. He's made like his brethren in all things. Why? Verse 17, so that. Can I encourage you, when you read the Bible, love the so that's. Learn to notify or notice the so that's. Circle the so that's. There's a reason, there's a purpose. He's telling us that Christ did this for a very distinct purpose. And what was it? 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful priest in the things pertaining to God. Think back to the Old Testament. What did priests do? They represented men to God. They interceded on the behalf of men to God. They brought the needs of men to God. This is what Christ does. He becomes our faithful priest. And notice he's a merciful priest. And what did this priest do? Look at verse 17. He came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I love this term. Do you know what propitiation means? This is one of those theological terms that I hope you come to love. Because if you grasp what propitiation means, you understand what Christ did and you understand the heart of the gospel. Propitiation means to satisfy wrath. To satisfy wrath. That's exactly what Jesus did in his incarnation, in his willingness to become a man and take on the limits and constraints of humanity and conceal his deity behind the veil of his humanity. He did that in order that ultimately he could make propitiation for the sins of the people. He did it so he could appease God's wrath, to placate God, to pacify God, to appease God, to satisfy the demands of God's anger against sin. This is why he came to propitiate God's wrath. It's a loaded theological term. In fact, it's used in a number of other places in Scripture. Let me read just a few of them to you. Romans 3.25, God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. 1 John 2.2 says, Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you understand that God is a God of wrath? We live in a culture, an evangelical culture, where people don't want to hear this. We can talk about God being love all day. We can talk about God being kind all day and merciful and gracious and people love that and the church loves that and people just fawn over the fact that God is love. But did you understand the fact that if he is a God of love, there is a corresponding hate he must have for the things that are contrary to his nature? If God doesn't hate what is contrary to his being, then he's not a loving God. So don't disconnect his hate and his wrath from his love. He requires justice. He requires wrath. God cannot overlook this. His wrath must be satisfied. This is what John Murray says in his book, Redemption Accomplished. He says, the wrath of God is the inevitable reaction of the divine holiness against sin. 
Sin is the contradiction of the perfection of God, and he cannot but recoil against it, which is a contradiction of himself. Such recoil is his holy indignation. God is a God of wrath, and he does what every just judge would do. He has to punish sin. No just judge will let a convicted criminal go and just say, it's okay, let's pretend it never happened. I'll close my eyes and wink at you and just move on. No righteous judge does that. Nor does God do that. He must punish sin. And Jesus came to stand in our place. He inserted himself between us as our priest and the wrath of God. He drank the cup in full. He bore the fullness of God's wrath. He didn't deflect it. He drank it. He absorbed it. He experienced it in its full force. This is why on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, the father, in some sense, turns his back on the son. As the son absorbs the full wrath of the father as he takes on our sin. This is what Christmas is about. The arrival of the God-man who would be our priest and offer himself as the sacrifice. So what are we celebrating at Christmas? The arrival of the Savior who came to identify with us, number one. Number two, to deliver us from the fear of death. Number three, to act as our sympathetic priest. Number four, there's one more reason. It's to help us in our temptation. He came also to help us in our temptation. Notice verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I love this. How do you face temptation in this world? How do you get victory over temptation? How do you fight the, the, the temptations that you are faced with every moment of every day? Let's just face it, this is a daily reality. You face temptation in this world. And James 1 tells us that we're tempted and drawn away when our lusts get involved, when our heart and our inner desires are, are taking us away and carrying us away and enticing us. Believer, please don't ever forget that Satan's aim and temptation is to lead you into the worst evil. Sin is sugar-coated poison. 
Temptation is sugar-coated poison. It looks wonderful. It looks marvelous. But if you take a bite into it and you ingest it and you swallow it, it destroys you. That's Satan's goal. His goal is to tempt you, to lead you into sin. He's like a serpent who deceives. He's like a lion who devours. And he attempts, he tempts us to assault our interest in the person and work of Christ. That's what he's doing. That's what he's operating under. That's his assumption. That's his operating plan is to go after you, to get you to engage in sin so that you can make less of Christ and more of yourself. That's the kind of devil he is. The world tempts us. Satan tempts us. Our own lusts tempt us. And I'm sure most of us would admit that when we're in temptation, sometimes it's really hard to resist. Think back to your week. Did you give in to temptation this week? Thought comes into your mind and you have a choice right in that moment to fight it or to give in to it. Did you give in? You're presented with the opportunity to get angry. You're presented with the opportunity to worry. You're presented with the opportunity to get anxious. You're presented with an image on the screen or on your cell phone. What do you do in that moment? Temptation is not the sin. It's an opportunity to sin. So what do you do in that moment? What do you need in that moment? Where do you turn for help in that moment? You need someone who can assist you. You need strength. You need grace. You need mercy. You need wisdom. You need someone in that moment to assist you. And the writer of Hebrews tells us Christ is there to assist you. That's what verse 18 says. He's tempted in every way. He's able, therefore, to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Believer, do you understand that you're not alone in this? Christ has walked here. He's done this. He's experienced the temptation. He felt the full weight of Satan's temptation in the desert for 40 days as he tempted him to turn stones into bread, as he tempted him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, as he tempted him to give him the kingdoms of the world. Christ felt all of that temptation. He faced it in his ministry when he was hungry, when he was thirsty, when he was tired, when he was sorrowful. He felt the fullness of it in the garden that night as he's about ready to be arrested and he's sweating drops of blood. He knew what temptation felt like. But he never gave in. He never sinned. Go over to Hebrews 4.15. Look at Hebrews 4.15, just a couple verses to the right. says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Christ didn't sin in those temptations. And I think that he actually felt more temptation than you and I will ever experience. The reason I say that is because you and I tend to give in to temptation. When it ramps up and it gets more and more and more, we just tend to give in to it. Jesus had nothing in himself for sin to appeal to. 
So in order for the temptation to to max out, the devil increased those temptations. And I believe that Jesus resisted temptation and never gave into it, but I think he felt it to the fullness of the degree that he could feel it in a way that we will never possibly experience. So he knows what it means to be tempted. He's felt everything that we feel. And he was victorious. And notice verse 18, go back to Matt, uh, Hebrews 2 verse 18. Because of that, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's been here, he's walked this earth, he was human, he's been victorious over sin and temptation. He's been able to not give in. He understands us, he knows how to help, he stands ready to help So the question I want to pose to you for just a moment is what temptation are you struggling with? What's that besetting sin for you that when the temptation arises, you often capitulate to it and you often give into it? What temptation is that for you? Do you know that you have a Savior who is willing and able to help you in that? He sympathizes with the suffering. He's been there. He knows what it's like. He's felt it, and yet he is able to assist you in that moment. And so in that moment, are you casting yourself upon the person and work of Christ? He's there to assist. So put all this together. What is Christmas about? It's about the arrival of the one who came to identify with us. It's about the arrival of the one who came to deliver us from the fear of death. It's about the coming of the one who could act as our sympathetic high priest. And it's about the one who came to help us in our temptation. That little baby in the manger grew to become a man who's accomplished all of that for us. And so this is the spirit of Christmas. And the question I want to pose to you this morning, number one, is do you know those things? Do you understand those things? Have you thought about those things? Are you meditating on those things? And more importantly, do you know this Savior? Have you come to embrace him? Have you submitted your life to him? Have you allowed him to become the Lord of your life? Have you submitted to his lordship? Are you surrendered to him? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in him so that he can accomplish all of these things in you and through you? If you really want to celebrate Christmas, that's how you do it. You submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you watch him work in all of these things. Father, we thank you for this marvelous text which reminds us of our great need. It reminds us of the sufficiency of our Savior It reminds us of the tremendous work that he's accomplished. And so, Lord, this Christmas, as we go through the parties and we go through the gatherings and we celebrate together with friends and family, beneath all of that, may there be the cognizance and the recognition and the wonder and the praise and the adoration of our sweet Savior who left the rights and privileges of heaven to walk this earth, to propitiate your wrath against our sin 
to be our high priest and to give us victory in the moments of temptation. Lord, let us make much of Christ this Christmas for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.